Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A week of big moves in the market, a big gathering in Davos, and a big signal from the Fed. But in the end, it was a tragic shooting in a small town in Texas that cast the biggest shadow over it all. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week's special contributor Larry Summers on whether bad news in the markets and the economy is good news for the Fed. Humility is the right posture with respect to uh, monetary policy. And Blair Efron of Centerview Partners on whether things really are as bad as they sometimes seem. I've never seen as uh, murky a period as we're in right now. Sometimes the biggest events don't move markets, but they do overshadow everything else. And this week, it was the killing of 19 children in their elementary school classroom in South Texas, provoking anger from President Biden. Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Time to turn this pain into action. 
But as much as the tragedy held our attention this week, there was a lot going on elsewhere, like in Davos, Switzerland, where the great and the good of business and finance gathered once again, and we heard about everything, from Madame Lagarde on the odds of a recession. For the moment, we are not seeing uh, a recession in the euro area. To Bank of America's Brian Moynihan on the strength of the consumer. In the first two weeks of May, the consumer spent 10% more than they did last May. That's over top of the payments that went out to pay taxes. To Fidelity CEO Ann Richards on the global food crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. One of the things that has been really constructive about the conversations this week is how the risk of a food crisis has gone right up the agenda. And George Soros on whether the war could end it all. The invasion may have been the beginning of the Third World War and our civilization may not survive it. And while all those bold-faced names were talking in Davos, we got the minutes from the Fed's May meeting, showing that by raising rates now, they may have more flexibility later on. I'm not sure how much the Fed is really moving this market anymore. This is a market, I think, kind of running on fumes and looking for a direction from anybody. They're not getting it from the Fed right now. And whether it was the hint of a let-up from the Fed or just wishing our ways toward better times, the equity markets finally broke their downward trend, with equities across the board up for the first time in eight weeks. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq were up over 6.5% for the week, giving the S&P its best rally since 2020. And that risk-on sentiment carried over to bonds, as yields on the 10-year gave up four basis points, ending the week under 2.74. To take us through what, if anything, we learned from the markets this week, Welcome now, Ben Inker. He's GMO, co-head of Asset Allocation, and Lizanne Saunders, Charles Schwab, chief investment strategist. So, Lizanne, I'll start with you. Are happy times here again? Um, I, I think it's too soon to tell. Looking at a, a one-week uh, rally after seven weeks of, of pretty significant carnage is is, is more indicative of a counter-trend move, uh, the types of rallies you tend to see in bear markets. I think it's premature to look at this either from a technical or breadth perspective and suggest that it marks the, the beginning of a new cyclical uh, uptrend. Uh, this is just natural to see this kind of pressure. I think, you know, I, somewhat ironically, it was the weaker economic data to a large degree that changed the perspective or the narrative as it relates to Fed policy to maybe they have some flexibility to pause after the next couple of rate hikes. But uh, I think it's also premature to make that assessment. So, Ben, I know that you're a longer-term investor. You don't just look week to week. But did we learn anything about that issue, about whether it's a soft landing or a hard landing from what we saw this week? I don't think we learned anything that's that determinative. Uh, we've seen some evidence that there are parts of the economy that are softening. I mean, it's most clear in the housing market, and that's the place most heavily impacted by what goes on in rates. So, uh, you know, that shouldn't have been a surprise. I'd say from the consumer perspective, the consumer still seems to be pretty strong. Um, we haven't seen strong evidence of, of the consumer pulling back. So I, I don't think we've seen anything that should really cause people to have said, ah, okay, great. Uh, we're going to have a soft landing. We're not going to have recession. We're not going to have uh, continued inflation problems. But as Lizanne was saying, man, it had been a really long run of the market losing week after week. Uh, and markets almost never move for long periods of time just in one direction. There's always volatility. Lizanne, I wonder uh, what it told us, if anything, about the possibility of a recession. I'm 
So uh, clearly the Fed doesn't um, want to engineer or drive us into a recession, but they do concede it may be the the price in order to narrow the gap between demand and supply. And a monetary policy can sometimes be a fairly blunt instrument. And really all they can control right now is the demand side. I think the path to a soft landing would be the supply side easing up, not just supply chain disruptions, but also the supply of labor. And that doesn't appear to be imminent, but I, I think that's probably the primary path to a soft landing. Otherwise, I think the conditions in place right now, the kind of early deterioration that we're seeing have the needle pointing a little bit more toward recession than soft landing. The last 13 rate hike cycles, you've had thir- uh, 10 recessions and three soft landings. So simple history says that it's more likely this time. And with a 40-year high in inflation and the Fed simultaneously trying to shrink a $9 trillion balance sheet, it's hard to suggest that that points the needle more towards soft landing. But there is a path in that direction. Liz Ann Saunders and Ben Inker will be staying with us as we turn from what the markets did this week to what we should do with the markets going forward. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The market ended the week in a sinking coma that made it clear that the worst economic shortage of all was the shortage of buyers on Wall Street. It was a week that recalled the words of Otto H. Kahn, the famous financier and art patron who once described finance as an old lady with shaken nerves. That was Louis Werkheiser, of course, on Wall Street Week back in 1973. Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab and Ben Inker of GMO have stayed with us. So, Ben, I don't know about a nervous uh, widow with, uh, dealing with the markets. This week, in fact, it was up, not down. At the same time, the market has clearly been nervous. How do you approach this? And particularly, I read with great interest your talk about a so-called growth trap. Yeah, I think, you know, as a value manager, one of the things that happens to us all the time, a client comes in or a prospective client comes in and says, oh, you buy value stocks. How do you avoid value traps? Um, And it's a perfectly reasonable question because value traps are a pain for value managers. But what people don't seem to focus on is those same kinds of stocks exist in the growth universe as well, right? A trap is just a company that winds up not doing as well as investors were expecting. And those stocks actually turn out to be more painful if they were growth stocks than if they're value stocks for not such a weird reason, right? If you're a value stock, nobody expected all that much from you. They're still disappointed if you do even worse. But if you're a growth stock, if people were expecting wonderful things out of you because you were Peloton and were going to sell a bike to everyone on earth, when you fail to live up to that, there's two problems. One, your fundamentals are worse, but two, your valuation drops, right? That growth premium you had, you're no longer worthy of. And whether you're Peloton, whether you're Netflix, uh, whether you're the whole series of growth stocks that have turned out to be traps in the past year, one of the interesting things that's gone on in the past months is this has actually been the worst year to be a disappointing growth stock relative to growth stocks. So, right, it's been a lousy year for growth stocks, fine. But the stocks that have done excessively badly relative to the rest of of growth are those growth companies that have disappointed. Um, And we we think if you're going to be hiring active managers, um, it's important to recognize they're not going to be right every time. Uh, And one of the things that people are only relearning pretty recently 
is, yeah, it's really painful as a growth investor to turn out to have been wrong on a stock. Uh, and we think that that pattern of growth traps uh, doing particularly badly is set to continue for a while. So, so Lizanne, what about that? Obviously, when you talk about growth stocks, there are a lot of things included in that, a wide range of different companies. At the same time, in a world of rising rates, rising interest rates, all of the things being equal, which they never are, uh, growth is going to do worse because you're discounting that future cash flow, aren't you? Well, and especially in an environment where some of these so-called growth stocks are actually the non-profitable stock. They don't have any earnings growth. They don't have any earnings. And I think when you combine that, which those types of stocks, whether it's non-profitable tech, they were very narrative driven. They really represented one of the pockets of where speculative froth was the primary uh, driver. And in this part of the cycle, those types of companies, those longer duration, you know, eternal duration uh, stocks as you wait for that earnings stream in a rising inflation, rising interest rate environment get absolutely hammered. The one thing I'd say, and I, I, it's a little bit different a take on the idea or concepts of growth and value, and I often describe it as lowercase v and lowercase g, is investing based on the, the fundamentals or characteristics or factors of growth or value. In fact, you know, Bloomberg does amazing work on uh, factors. And if you look over the last three months, over the last six months, sort of this era of tighter monetary policy, high inflation, rising interest rates, what's interesting is even within segments of the market that are mostly housed in the growth indexes, tech, consumer discretionary, communication services, it's the value-oriented factors that are working, that are leading, meaning stocks that, that trade or stocks that screen well on those types of factors, whether it's strong free cash flow yield, strong balance sheet, lower volatility, they've been doing well. So I think sometimes investors have to take off the blinders when they think about growth and value, because you can look for value in areas that happen to live in the growth indexes. And there are times where certain stocks that live in the value indexes don't offer a tremendous amount of value. Utilities, which have been popular stocks because of the defensive nature, are now trading at a record or near record positive or, or, or premium from a PE perspective to the S&P 500. So, Ben, I'm curious about your reaction to that. I suspect you might not entirely disagree because you talked about active investing. You were saying be careful about growth stocks. At the same time, there are these elements such as good old-fashioned cash flow and balance sheet and, and volatility and stuff like that. Within the growth sector, there may be still some good buys. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, there almost always are, right? It is. It, it would be weird if an entire half of the market and growth and value tend to be defined by halves if there was nothing worth owning. Um, so even a year ago, there were probably some growth stocks that were worth owning. And I would say we've got we have a strategy uh, that we've been running for the last year and a half where we're explicitly long undervalued stocks and short uh, overvalued stocks. And one of the things we've found in recent months is some of the stocks we were short a year ago are showing up on the long side of our book um, uh, because the market has uh, really fallen out of love with them. Um, and that's a natural, you know, that is a natural process. And, and one of the things about growth and value and that people tend to forget, they are always dynamic strategies. Right. You buy a you buy a value portfolio, you come back in a year and some of those stocks aren't value anymore. Hmm. Now, 
oftentimes those stocks that aren't value, it's a good thing because the market has said, ooh, this is actually something pretty cool. And uh, the valuation goes up and they graduate to the growth universe. On the growth side, what you really want is for those growth companies that you owned at the beginning of the year to still look like growth companies at the end of the year. Because if they don't, it's probably because something quite bad has happened to them. And that's a piece people don't tend to recognize, especially when they're talking about a stark duration difference uh, between growth and value. Lizanne, I want to give you the last word. I always throw you a curveball. Here's a curveball. Is the real answer here we should all lower our expectations for what they have been and what we should expect from our portfolio? Uh, I, I, you know, there's nobody that I know out there that does long-term capital markets expectations that has a lofty number in keeping with, say, the, the 10 years leading up to the pandemic or even the 10 years uh, up until the end of last year. So I, I think just where we are in the cycle, the fact that household ownership of equities is as of um, the end of the year, um, even through the first quarter, was at a record um, high level. That right. that doesn't bode right. incredibly ill for subsequent 10-year returns, but it right. does suggest curb your enthusiasm for excess returns. Okay, many thanks to both Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab and to Ben Inker of GMO. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We knew it was coming, but somehow it still surprised us. We'd pumped record amounts of dollars and yen and pounds and euros into the global system all to keep it going through a financial crisis and then a pandemic. 
as justified by then-Fed Chair Janet Yellen. At present, I view the balance of risks as still calling for a highly accommodative monetary policy to support a stronger recovery and more rapid growth in employment. And then we added trillions of dollars of fiscal stimulus, including that American Rescue Plan President Biden convinced us we just had to have. For each dollar this tax cut cost, it returns $8 in benefits down the line. It's a gigantic help. It's an eight to one return. But now the time has come to cut down on all that stimulus on both the fiscal side. We should not put more stimulus spending into the economy because that is what generated so much of this. And on the monetary side. If you want to tighten policy, you have to raise interest rates by more than inflation went up leaving us to debate just how bad it could get. Supply shocks, demand shocks, all together mixed in one. Of course it is unclear at this moment in time. When it comes to getting a sense of what's really going on in the markets and in the business world, there's one person we really love to turn to, and that is Blair Efron. He is the founder, co-founder, and partner in Centerview Partners. Blair, thanks so much for being with us. So we had a lot of stimulus go into the market, fiscal and monetary. We took it out, and now people are really almost in a panic, some people, worried about where we're going. What is your sense of where we are? David, first of all, thanks for having me on. And obviously, uh, everything's a lot more murky than last time I was on. So what I would tell you is this. One, I've never seen as uh, murky a period as we're in right now. I think the answer is across the spectrum. We're going to know a lot more in the next two months. Let's define first what we're looking for. Everybody talks about slowdown versus recession. Remember, recession, at least by uh, our traditional definition, means two quarters of negative GDP growth. I don't think that's going to happen. I do think there's going to be uh, three or so data points that we're all going to pay close attention to in the next two months that have to show decent results. Obviously, inflation. Let's assume that the Fed funds goal, public goal of two to two and a half percent is going to look light and it's somewhere between three to four percent uh, before it's all done. To be at the better end of that, you're going to hope to see inflation publishing with a seven by midsummer and with a six later in the summer. Secondly, energy prices. Do they hang in where they are or do they go higher? That's always going to have a big influence. They give us the pump. I would note that the biggest companies, the big, the oil majors, have not increased their production budgets, uh, which kicks in over the intermediate term. So they're telling you that uh, in some ways today, the belief is it's a big cycle. And finally, where is housing going to be? Mortgage rates up 200 plus basis points in just a few months. The last time we saw that, it cooled housing down about 15%. We need housing to do better. To the extent this all happens, I believe that we will uh, be in a period of slowdown, certainly, but that there's enough tailwind in different parts of the economy to keep this from being uh, going uh, to a full-blown recession. So we're certainly seeing a slowdown, let's put it mildly, in the equity markets. It's been really a roller coaster, but down substantially this year. Is that translating into your business? Are CEOs less uh, eager to make deals right now? Absolutely. I would say that the biggest factor in deal making is going to be confidence. And confidence comes from feeling certain in your decision making, certain in the outcomes of various moves you're going to make. And right now we are in an uncertain environment. CEOs can make judgments when there's a high growth environment. They can equally make judgments in a lower growth environment. Right now, it's certainly a difficult period, but things are happening. I tell you, David, that volumes remain okay. It's actually the value, the overall value of transactions is down 35, 40%. 
And that tells you that CEOs are focusing still on doing uh, moves that are more tactical than strategic, but doing them. Um, and they are getting things financed. I would say, particularly if it's obvious, the equity market's not so, but uh, for investment grade, no issue. And for below investment grade, a lot more expensive. 300 basis points are so higher than it would have been even a few months ago. But given what's going on in the leveraged loan market, which is very robust, taking off a lot of the uh, downward impact in the high yield market in terms of issuance volume, things are actually still, frankly, uh, getting done. From your experience, uh, from your vantage point, is it possible we're all overreacting? Uh, that's not a word I would use, no. I think uh, this is an environment where, if anything, you want to react aggressively, act aggressively, get ahead of it. Uh, I'm someone that certainly thinks, uh, and I have, as you and I have talked about for quite a while, that uh, getting to rate raises uh, had to happen, would have been uh, perhaps better happened sooner. There are reasons for that it didn't. But the rate had to happen, and you want the curve to happen steeply. So I believe getting ahead of it, particularly because we had an asset price environment. Okay, Blair, it's always such a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. This Blair Efron of Centerview Partners. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we want to wrap up the week once again with our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. And Larry, we have a lot to talk about when it comes to the economy with respect to markets. But I want to start with something very different, and that is what we saw in that tragic shooting down in South Texas in that elementary school. I'd like to say it's unimaginable, except it's happened too many times. Do you have any thoughts about what we're seeing in this country? Horror, rage, frustration. We can do better. We can do better. We need to think through what the right solution is. Uh, some some limits on access to guns that don't threaten any real Second Amendment right. Some red flag set of uh, procedures that cap catch. Uh, signs of trouble in people and uh, take actions. We just can't accept this as the regular order of business in America. And I think, David, it reflects something that may be broader, a kind of new callousness uh, in our country. We're probably only in the fifth inning with respect to uh, COVID, there are going to be hundreds of people dying each day, as far as the eye can see. And we are not, as a country, making the investments, whether it's vaccines you can take uh, through your nose, whether it's new therapeutics, whether it's a war on long uh, COVID and clinical trials that we need. We've let the COVID controversy become a green eye shade thing about pay-fors and a culture thing about masks when they're the highest return investments available in our society for here and for leadership around the world. And we just can't seem to get there. And I just don't understand why we can't all come together on the proposition that innocent Americans shouldn't be dying and that it's government's first obligation in the name of security to prevent that from happening. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what's going on. Larry, let's come back now to the economy, if we could. Uh, and particularly, we had FOMC minutes coming out this week that the markets took as good news because they talked about having raising rates at 50 basis points for two or three times, and then that gives them flexibility. Has the Fed already accomplished much of what it has to accomplish with respect to inflation? I doubt it, but I'm not sure. I think the Fed's flexibility is a much better place for it to be than all this emphasis on forward guidance that we were having uh, for a long time. I think humility is the right posture in uh, with respect to uh, monetary policy. David, as you know, my view has been that inflation's not going to come down without some meaningful downturn in our economy that means an increase in unemployment. But I've been uncertain as to where interest rates will have to go to achieve that, particularly all that's happening that's been adverse for financial conditions in the stock market and in uh, credit markets. Okay, well, let's talk about the Congressional Budget Office, because I don't know how confident they are, but they came out with projections this week that, that would sure look like a soft landing to me. They have inflation coming down to 2.3% by 2024. They've got GDP growth at 1.5%. Unemployment still under 4%, it's 3.8%. And the 10-year only goes up to 3.1%. That sounds a lot like a soft landing to me, Larry. 
I've always thought of the CBO as a bastion of credibility. I've watched the CBO projections for 40 years. This is their least plausible one in the 40 years uh, that I've been watching. To be fair, they have to lock that forecast up months ago, and a lot's happened that's been adverse in the last several months. But they are the last holdout on team transitory, on the conviction that somehow we can have the economy overstimulated and still have inflation come way down because the supply side is just going to wonderfully materialize. That's a conceivable outcome. One of the developments this week was how the United Kingdom is addressing some of the energy cost problems. They're imposing a 25% windfall profits tax on excess profits from oil and gas. We had Mohammed al and say, you know what, he's not sure it's a great idea, but it's better than the alternatives if they give that money to the people who are having to pay more, who don't tend not to be the people who can afford it. What do you think about windfall profits taxes on oil and gas? I don't know about the British context, but I think in the American context, they'd be a grave, grave uh, error. Today's windfall profits tax is tomorrow is a return, is a tax on the return people made on investments that prepared for this contingency. A society that imposes windfall profits taxes is a society that discourages preparatory uh, investments. It's a mistake. If we need revenue, which we do in this country, we should get it by repealing the windfall profits giveaway that was represented in the Trump tax cuts to a substantial degree. And that would enable us also to join the world in the global tax cooperation that was such a great success for uh, Secretary Yellen. I've sometimes been critical of the Biden administration, but I applaud them for having resisted the easy political temptation to uh, windfall profits taxes. That was the courageous thing, and that was the right thing. Uh, Larry, let's talk about how we're trying to get our arms around inflation back here. We always talk about macroeconomics. You're a renowned macroeconomist. What about some of the microeconomics, things like antitrust policy, something we talked about last week on Wall Street Week. You tweeted about it to, to good effect this week. Uh, also, for that matter, tariffs. We continue to talk about tariffs with even Secretary of State Blinken coming out and giving a speech this week. doesn't sound like those China tariffs are coming off anytime soon. I would say this. Those who say that vigorous competition is central to capitalism are absolutely right. We should be pushing for vigorous competition. Probably the single most important instrument the government has for promoting competition in key industries is maintaining open markets in which foreign companies have access to U.S. markets and can compete with U.S. producers, and which in return for that, U.S. producers get more access uh, to uh, foreign markets. Trade liberalization is central to having competition uh, in the economy, and it should be at the front of any kind of competition policy. If we had not had 17.5% tariffs on infant formula, we would be in a much better position with respect to that issue uh, today. 
if governments had more sensible procurement policies with respect to infant formula at the state level, we would be in a better position with respect to uh, infant formula uh, today. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much for being back with us this week. That's our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. To err is human, to forgive divine. So wrote Alexander Pope over 300 years ago. And our leaders are giving us plenty of opportunities through the years to demonstrate just how divine we all can be. Consider, for example, President Ford during a presidential debate in 1976 telling an incredulous Max Frankel of the New York Times that there really wasn't an Iron Curtain after all. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. I'm sorry, could I just follow? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying most of the countries there? Or a few years later, when President Reagan in 1984 was getting ready to give a radio address and thinking the mic in front of him wasn't on. I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. The Soviet Union condemned the remarks, and his opponent that year, Walter Mondale, tried to use it against him in the election, but we all know how that ended, right? Presidential gaffes are not merely relics of the 70s and the 80s. This week, we had two reminders that they're very much alive and well in the third decade of the 21st century. As former President George W. Bush tried to condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine and scored something of an own goal, which quickly was picked up on by Stephen Colbert. The decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, Jiminy Christmas. <laughs> the one phrase he definitely should never utter for the rest of his life. It's like he's thinking about it all the time, and it just popped out. And then there's President Biden on his trip to Asia when he was asked about the U.S. springing to the defense of Taiwan if it were invaded. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. Leading some, at least, to take issue, contending that he was committing to take up arms if necessary, rather than merely ensuring that Taiwan can defend itself. And this isn't the first time the president has appeared to go beyond stated policy on Taiwan. It's more like the fourth reminding us once again of that aphorism of Michael Kinsley. In Washington, a gaffe is when someone tells the truth by mistake. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cutter economic forum.com.